Hello, and welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. I'm Adam Huss, coming to you from Los Angeles, California. Thank you so much for listening. I'm so grateful for those of you who support this podcast via Patreon subscription. I know I mention this almost every episode, but you really are amazing and vital to making this podcast possible. I'm humbled and inspired by your ongoing support. As of the last episode, the Organic Wine Podcast has been downloaded over 100,000 times. I honestly couldn't have made it this far without you. Thank you so much. If you aren't a Patreon subscriber and would like to support this podcast, if you'd like more people to ask the questions and consider the ideas that we discuss on this podcast, the link to the Patreon will be in the show notes, as well as on the support page at organicwinepodcast.com. A small contribution makes a huge impact. Thank you. Hey, I want to say something to those of you who sell wines and ciders in the U.S., retail or wholesale. Cider is this incredible, untapped opportunity. Pun intended. The problem, as I see it, is that the drinking public continues to associate cider with the bland and sipid versions that are widely distributed in bars across the U.S. and served as a Swedish alternative to beer. It's not, and it's our job to change that. The best ciders are terroir-driven, vintage-dependent, sparkling wines. So here's my request. Let's stop selling cider with our beer list. Let's stop listing cider with beer on the menu and start listing it in the sparkling wine section of the menu. Let's get people to start associating cider with champagne and cremat and cava and prosecco, not Budweiser. My guest for this episode is Dave Carr of Raging Cider and Mead, and he's helping to redefine what cider can be and where it can come from. Dave makes cider in San Diego County, and for those of you unfamiliar with California, that's south of me here in Los Angeles. We often look north for great cider cultures, and I'll admit that's why it took me so long to have Dave on the podcast. But it turns out there's an old, very special, and pretty outstanding cider culture just over an hour south of Los Angeles. In fact, once you hear Dave's description of growing cider here, you may begin to see it as one of the best places to grow cider. I don't want to give too much away, but you're going to find out about a unique population of banana slugs the rich apple and pear history of Gold Rush Town, Julian, California, which is at 42,000 feet and about an hour south of me, where Dave is helping to rebuild and regenerate old, historic, and neglected orchards. You'll also hear about a seedling pear named Screaming Weasel, a peri named Perry Farrell, the quest for the Palomar Giant, sweet meads, sizers, and piments, Dave's approach to orchard polyculture, including cover cropping with collards, composting with mushrooms, and mulching with spent mushroom substrate, alley cropping with asparagus, beans, and squash, as well as looking on the bright side of orchard pests and how to manage them despite lazy cats, a problem with which I'm all too familiar. That's right, I'm looking at you, Robin. In addition to renewing legacy orchards and farming his home orchard and other local orchards in a beyond organic way, Dave is caretaking old historic orchards for a local tribe council that preserves land from development. And he's trying to develop locally adapted seedling apples and pears to create a uniquely Southern California cider culture. You'll hear about all of this and more and how you can taste his diverse array of natural regional ciders, meads, and coferments at his taproom in San Marcos. Enjoy. Hey, Dave. Welcome. Hey, how are you? Good, good. Thanks for doing this. It's um, I'm, I was looking forward to this, and it's kind of been a long time coming. I've been following what you've been up to, 
and I just feel like a lot of things coalesced as like you you got in touch with me recently and I just started looking a little more deeply into what you were doing and a few things triggered for me that made me feel like I was totally neglectful and not having talked to you sooner so I'm glad we're finally talking <laughs> um, and part of that is just you know you you are part of the the closest to me uh, and representational of my home region for cider like which I just didn't really until I started digging into what you're doing didn't realize how much of a really cool cider scene there is in Southern California that you, and that's that's what you're doing can you can you talk about I mean just please introduce yourself a little bit and and your your cidery meadery uh, well my name is Dave Carr um, we're a small family cidery meadery from, called Raging Cider and Mead we're here in San Diego County um, we source most of our apples in the local mountains um, either from orchards we manage or uh uh, orchards of friends of ours. So, um, and we have everywhere from Julian to Palomar Mountain. So we have a pretty diverse growing region here. Um, it's not all palm trees and beaches. <laughs> yeah. What's the <laughs> elevation of those mountains where I some of the higher elevation places where you're getting apples? We have orchards that range from about 3,800 feet in elevation up to 5,400 feet in elevation. And then our own personal orchard is actually down at 1,800 feet in the foothills, um, which has become kind of an experimental thing for what apples will produce uh, when we have lower chill years. Um, some years we get 900 chill hours, some years we get 350. So it's been kind of a fun little experiment. Mm, I want to I dig a little bit more into that because I have some questions for you. But what about your um, honey? Where does that come from? Uh, we source from all local beekeepers. Um, hopefully my daughter, at some point, she has all the equipment. We'll start setting up beehives and, that we can source from as well. Um, but yeah, all local beekeepers, mostly between San Marcos Vista, Escondido, Valley Center, and then uh, up around Ramona and Julian as well. Nice. And I said apples, but you're also getting a lot of pears. And as I understand it, pears are actually really, uh, I mean, they seem to like Palomar Mountain in the area around there. Is that right? You like a lot of yeah. uh, a lot of wild or feral pears. Is that right? Actually, yeah, mostly in Julian. They're, I mean, they're, they're up on Palomar, too, but I find a lot of uh, wild and seedling pears up in uh, the Julian area. We, one orchard we manage up there has, I think at last count now, we're up over 30 wild pear trees. Many of them are just very young, just maybe a foot or two or three tall. But um, we have, I think, about 20-something of, of those that are producing to some extent. Like all different obviously varieties because they're sort of seedling type. Oh yeah. yeah there, there's yeah. some, we have one called screeching. We call screeching weasel because you can't even swallow it. It's I tried swallowing the juice from one, one time and it felt like someone's shoved sandpaper down my throat for two days. <laughs> <laughs> but you made cider out of it. Yeah, we make, it's in the, it's in a Perry that we make. Um, we have two actually it's in, it's originally we did one called neglected Perry, which was a blend of wild pears and Lincoln pears. And then last year we released our first Perry feral, which is all wild and seedling, uh, pears forged from around the County. 
Yeah, and I'm I'm looking at an empty bottle of Perry Farrell on my desk right now um, because I, I hung on to I ordered a bunch of your ciders not that long ago and they're already all gone <laughs> and <laughs> I hung on to this bottle because this was absolutely my favorite. It's I mean I'm I'm a Perry fanatic in some ways um, and this was just so good and I was like I can't believe this is like growing right here in Southern California. And then I haven't come across this before. So you're, you can expect, and I, it's got a fun name. We were just talking about the name Perry Farrell and the TTB giving you a, a little bit of a hassle about that. Yeah. Well, they were uh, at the bottom of the label. It said sparkling Perry. So then he insisted on me putting sparkling in front of Perry Farrell. And I asked him why. And they said, well, we know what you're trying to do here. Um, and we want to have sparkling in front of it. So I, I let it go. I'm going to change it next year. So we don't say sparkling Perry on the bottom and see if I can just get away with Perry Farrell. So <laughs> nice. Um, it's, it's so good. And you're, I mean, can you talk a little bit about how you got into this? Like, what's your story? Like, how did you, how did you end up doing what you're doing? Uh, well, I actually first fell in love with cider when I was 13 and I was in England visit, visiting family. All my parents, my parents are from there. And so we would go back quite often. And I realized I could drink in pubs because I was tall. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I, didn't like, I didn't like the English ales. So I actually fell in love with cider at that time. And, and, uh, but unfortunately, here in the U.S., you could never find ciders that were like that. But about, I think, 12, 13 years ago, my wife had to go gluten-free. So I started making cider for her, first from store-bought juice. And then I was looking, we have apple trees on our property. So I started pressing juice from those, and and uh, it came out pretty good. And, and eventually, my wife just pushed me to start a cidery. So uh, that's how we ended up here. Um, and I, I love it. And I met people up in the mountains where I could source more apples. So it seemed like it would be a viable um, option and and talk about like uh, how did you get into the the sort of approach that you have you i mean you're making essentially natural cider right this is uninoculated you're you're obviously foraging wild stuff feral stuff seedling stuff but you're also managing your the orchards that you're managing uh, organically or better can you talk a little bit about that and where that came from yeah i mean we've always farmed pretty much organically and it's evolved to become more and more organic or beyond actually beyond organic um, for years. And so when we started orcharding more, uh, I just incorporated those ideals and just kept doing research on uh, how to do it with trees. So, you know, I read Michael Phillips and, and various other authors and, and just online things and, and just, I, uh, actually, so this all comes from back when uh, my son was, was 12, he, he got cancer. And so our whole thing has been since then to really avoid, you know, pesticides, herbicides, that sort of thing in our, in our food supply. And, and uh, so that, that informed the, the direction we went with our farming and orcharding. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. That's a, that's an, that's a pretty incredible story. Yeah, and he, um, and he, I mean, he's alive today, and uh, I'm battling another one right now, but he's doing really well with it. So, wow, wow, that's incredible. Um, yeah, that's that's amazing. I, I, I mean, I'm curious also how how did that translate into the cider making? Did you did you? Well, was I, that just when a I was making, yeah. 
Yeah, it was like, well, uh, first I started with store-bought juice. So obviously I was using lab yeast. I brewed beer for like 20 years prior to even starting the cidery thing. So I, I kind of approached it from that direction. But then um, I actually, I was buying juice from Trader Joe's, which was only flash pasteurized. And I left some out in the garage and a couple of the bottles started fermenting on their own. So I just poured them in and let them go. And and that came out pretty good. And then when we were pressing our own apples, I was like, well, I'm, you know, I, the juice started fermenting right away. So I just let that go. And that it, it, it came out well. And, and then I started researching. There's a number. There's actually three natural cideries around this. Uh, I mean, wineries around this that are, are doing natural wine. So that also kind of spurred me on to, to, to go down that path. And, and uh, so that's how we ended up. I, and I love the complexity of what it creates versus kind of that monotone of a, of a lab fermented uh, cider, you know, lab piece fermented cider. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, well, I I mean, and it is, there's like a great range that I tasted in all of your ciders and and thanks for including that one. Um, that was sort of the, the, what was it? The the co-ferment? Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, no, the one that was, um, the big bottle, was it a co-ferment? I thought it was just more like an amalgamation of the, of the vintage. Like it was a, no, I think that was a co-ferment of Viognier and then a field blend of apples. Maybe that was it then. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, and again, and maybe that's why I liked it. I'm a big, uh, you know, wine, uh, grape. <laughs> um, I love grapes, as it turns out. <laughs> but yeah. uh, And that, we've been doing was... co-ferments for about four, I think four or five years now. Right on. Yeah. I love, I mean, I, I mean, and before we move on past, like, you know, your cidery packaging and everything like that. So Raging Cider and... You have your sort of icon, your mascot emblem logo is this little punk rock apple with a mohawk of apple leaves and a little yeah. like, looks like leather vest who's uh, who's moshing, basically, yeah. it looks like. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, we were, when my wife and I were kids, we were in the punk rock in the in the early 80s. And and so that was that kind of just grew that logo and kind of the theme grew out of that kind of attitude, I guess, or, or <laughs> that part of our life. <laughs> That's great. And the, and the Perry Farrell, I notice uh, the Apple has a microphone as well. Yeah, of course. He's well, a singer. That's <laughs> <laughs> um, great. Uh, so with, yeah. So I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about growing, you know, or, and what you've noticed from growing apples in, in Southern California. Like, I mean, for me, especially if, if you work with the low chill apples, I'm just finding like almost like a like they bloom twice. Do you ever see that where you're getting like two? Yeah, blooms? we get that with Anna apples in particular are, yes, are, yes. are famous for that. In fact, I've talked to someone down that lives down by the beach and they've gotten up to three crops in a year off of an Anna apple, which is yeah. blue mind even because I've gotten two. Um, and typically we'll get the first one in the summer, which is a pretty good crop. And then we'll get a small crop in the fall time. Yeah. Um, and then Dorset Golden will do it a little bit, but not as much. Yeah, Dorset. I, I don't know. What, I planted something that has golden in it. I don't know if it's Dorset Golden or Golden Russet, but it's. Um, it is. Yeah. It. I mean, I. The apples were basically ripe a month ago. They're already. They've already been eaten by the raccoons in my backyard. So yeah, <laughs> both them and the raccoon. Anna are barren <laughs> at this point. <laughs> um, and I've realized I need to like be uh, pay a little more attention to those raccoons and let them know they're not welcome. Um, but yeah, I'm yeah. Right now, <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah, 
Um, well, I'm guessing organics is a little bit easier, right? Like you're probably not getting mildew pressure. I mean, I have like Fuji in my backyard as well, and I, I haven't sprayed it in 10 years and have never had an issue and have huge crops every year. Do you, I mean, are you finding that as well that you, I mean, are you no spray with anything or? or yeah, you know, we're no spray beyond, we're no spray beyond foliar sprays for, um, you know, right. a, a, compost teas and and fish emulsion and that sort of thing but uh we're no spray i did get a bad because of the really wet spring i actually for the first time in our orchard here in, at our at our home got our first fire blight um oh wow infection. so i did have to do some treating for that um though it, it's a it was all with omri approved um things but yeah and i did a bunch of trimming so my trees look very not very impressive this year because I had to cut out a fair amount of wood. Oh wow! Um, was that because was that because this cool, wet spring that we had? Yeah, cool wet spring. Lots and lots of foggy, misty days this spring while everything yeah. was in bloom. And so our our earlier apples that the ones that bloomed first, like uh, the cur crabs, the mostly the hyslops. So the hyslops have a long bloom period. So I did run into some problems with it, and the wixens. Those all um were fine but i had a lot of problems with a little bit of the hyslop um the roxbury rust it's the black twigs the pink pearls um pink pearmain uh, i had to do a lot of cutting on that and then a couple of our quince as well that um, bloom a little bit later um had some fire blight issues so oh wow nice so what's what what are you into now like what is the what's what's exciting you and tripping your trigger in terms of like the growing or the making what, what what's where you're you headed right now right now i mean i'm kind of excited about stuff we're doing out in the field our, our the orchard we managed down at Quatai, which has been a five-year project is last year was supposed to have its first harvest and was looking good and then we had two late freezes so basically what the east coast is going through right now we experienced that last year here in san diego where and people are like what and in san diego but uh yeah we had late freezes in may too um and wow. between the two of them they wiped out our plum crop first and then they wiped out um especially at the guatai orchard wiped out 95 percent of our apples um and then the <laughs> the five percent that were left uh got knocked off when we had this hurricane remnant blew through here in the fall before they were ripe so that's right that's, that's right. that last five i think i got a half a bushel out of 900 trees last year oh that's heartbreaking yeah but i, so I know heartbreaking. but this year it's it's in fact we had to go down and thin because the trees were so heavy with that with fruit so fingers crossed we'll get a decent uh crop this year I, and the, so I've, go ahead go ahead I was going to say the other thing that's been exciting me is this we've been doing some work with an old orchard up on Palomar and there's a lost apple from it's not lost per se, but no one knows about it. It's called the Palomar Giant, which was really popular in L.A. and San Diego in the early 1900s and and uh, and was the only source was from Palomar. I believe it was a seedling as far as I can find out so far. And uh, we've been searching for one of the trees and the first one we found was dead. Um can't find the second one in the state park that's supposed to be there and then there's a property i can't get out of the owners but there's a third property and and uh they're they think that they have one and and so far i just went to the orchard yesterday and the apples are massive compared to everything else up there so i'm fingers crossed it's oh. going to be the apple we've been looking for so 
Oh my God. It's a quest. I love it. Uh Yeah. It's been ongoing. My daughter started it. She was reading about, um, she was reading history up on about Palomar mountain and came across this story about the Palomar giant. And, and so it's come, become kind of an obsession between her and myself, probably myself a little bit more, but (laughs) when did this start? How long has this been going on? Uh, I think we're on three years now. So I love that. um, Yeah. And, uh, the last two years, none of the trees that were suspected that could be it have fruited. So this is the first year where the, the some of the suspects are actually fruiting. In fact, the one's fruiting very heavily. Um, so, and like I said, it that orchard has a lot of big apples, and the apples on this tree are two to three times bigger than any of the other varieties on the in the orchard. So, so wow. I'm hoping. Well, hope, fingers hope crossed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, is your intent to? sort of resurrect it like take cuttings and yeah um, i've already i've already grafted out like six of the prospects that were out there um and Uh already then figured out that um uh, four of those prospects were not it and then one um obviously it hasn't fruited none of the ones i've grafted have fruited yet but uh one's from this uh area by the state park and it is from this uh tree at the bailey uh, orchard so um, and that's the one I felt really good about. And so I grafted actually, I think about eight different trees, eight trees on different rootstocks from that tree. So, Oh, wow. Okay. Well, fingers crossed. I'm excited to find out. <laughs> and that's, yeah. this explains why when I did this post of these apples that I used for the cider that I made last year, um, that were as big as, as the head of my friend whose tree I yes. got them from, you were like, wait a minute, what's this? What is that variety? <laughs> um, but I think I'm pretty sure that it was just Fuji and there were two freak giant apples on the Fuji tree. That yeah, I, I've done some research and Fujis can get up to, I've read to get up three, four pounds at times. Yeah. I mean, these were probably eight inches in diameter. I mean, they were, it was insane. I was just, yeah. like, I'd never seen apples like this. I mean, literally it's big, like, that's, we have a picture of her holding them up next to her head and it's like three, it's like she has three heads. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and yeah. But that's fun. I can't. Well, this will be fun. This will be exciting. I mean, do we know anything about the flavor? You know, historically, what people talk. I honestly about? have not found anything other than people talk about what a wonderful apple. I suspect it was probably a baking apple. To be honest with you, I, I don't yeah, think yeah. it's going to be a cider fruit per se. But um, I just, I just love the idea of finding something that is that you know, possibly originated here in Southern California, other than we're finding a lot of other seedlings and so on up in Julian, but, but this being yeah. something that was a popular apple, you know, a hundred plus right. years, ago, you know, to, I, th- right. I thought that'd be kind of fun. Well, and for people who aren't from this area or even people who are from this area and don't know, could you talk a little bit about the history of apples? I mean, I know Julian, you know, I mean, I, I'm not that well-versed, but I do know that Julian is known for its apples because they're, the apples from Julian won uh, uh, a World Fair uh, competition in, like, I don't know when, the 1940s or something like that? Yeah, or, 1930s or 20s, I forgot. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Julian, I think, I believe the first orchards were planted up in Julian in the 1870s. Uh-huh. Um, and then there's rumor that an orchard was planted on Palomar in the 1870s, but most of the stuff I can find that's reliable points to the late 1880s before they were planted there. Um, but yeah, it's the Southern California used to have a huge apple trade. And like, I know San Diego County's mountains, um, sir, you know, 
sold a lot of apples up into LA and and then across San Diego as well back in the early 1900s. We're, I think, probably the primary, um, one of the primary apple um, suppliers for those regions at the time. So, huh. And that's, and I mean, that mainly because of the elevation, right? So it's it actually yeah. you get this sort of temperate climate with cold winters enough chill hours because it's like you know close to a mile high in places julian's around four thousand something right yeah julian the orchards there are around four thousand to like just over five thousand feet is generally the range there um and then guatai which is where we manage the orchard is just south of julian and it's also it ranges from 3900 to four thousand feet um, so yeah, you get in the winter time. We get even in our warm years, they still get like a thousand plus chill hours up there. Um, you know, years like this, there's just tons of chill hours. And uh, the cool thing, there's they get a lot more rain too because the mountains lift up. They pull a lot more moisture out of the out of the uh, clouds. So Julian area gets, I think, generally around about like 30 or so inches Palomar can get up to around 50 to 60 inches of rain. In fact, if you go up there, it it looks like someone took a mountain from Northern California or Oregon and plopped it down in the middle of Southern California because of how lush the mountain can be in places. Um, In fact, it's just an odd side note. The only population of banana slugs South of uh, Santa Cruz is on Palomar mountain. (laughs) That's amazing. Honestly, like that's I, I, I mean, those kind of rainfalls are insane. I mean, we get, you know, 10 inches in L.A. You know what I mean? That's like our annual average is like 10 to 12, I think. Um, yeah, even like, in Valley Spring, we get, I think, well, we generally get about 14 or 15. But last, last, I mean, this last winter, we got oh, yeah. many, roughly 25 inches here. So Yeah, I think we set records this past winter, right? Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, like all of California, maybe. It's one of the wettest winters on record ever. Um, thus the fire blight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, how, so can you talk about what the, what goes into the peripheral and you know, what, what trees you're getting from and how you make that? I'm just, just as one example of, you know, what you, what you're doing. I just love to yeah, hear Yeah. There's like, there's one seedling pair down at the Watai orchard we take care of. And cause a lot of those orchards when they're originally planted were the old orchardists planted seedlings and then they grew up and then they grafted on what they wanted. And it's, so it's a tree where the original um, graft failed and the rootstock took off. Um, oh. and I know it was from like the period when pretty much everybody was doing that here. Um, in addition, uh, up in Julian, we find a lot of stuff like that, but in the orchard at, at up there, we actually manage it for the Kumeyaay land conservancy council. Um, and it, it has these Lincoln pears all over it and the Lincoln pears, you can just tell they've rolled down hills. And, and so in little hollows and all kinds of places where pears have collected all these like baby, pear trees have popped up just growing <laughs> wild so there must be and it's funny because i talk to people on the east coast and back there they don't find near as many like wild pears as we get here um and then all around julian there's just pear trees that pop up in just odd places like in uh you know on a on a street corner where you know and the guy's like i don't you know this pear's just been here for as long as our family's been here and their their family's been there since the 1800s pretty much so, <laughs> so i mean it's, it's there's one in particular we just found this last year i mean i've no i've been eyeing it for 
four years, but I met the family last year and they allowed us to harvest that and another pair that were both um, uh, wild pears. And it's got just crazy acid and, and crazy tannins and a really good flavor. So um, really excited about that one. And then the, the other one up on the property, um, it's like that. But then when it, once it blets, it becomes this incredibly delicious pear as well. So, uh, so um, this now I'm beginning to develop this theory that, you know, I mean, because I just found out how susceptible pears tend to be to fire blight that, you know, yeah. the, the low pressure here is probably what makes it you know, make so many more of the seedlings survive to adulthood. Um, oh, yeah. And, we, and we've had to, like at the orchard that we take care of up in Julian, the, the Mosul orchard, we've had to, not all of them, but some of the pear trees are, we've had to do some serious cutting to, to cut back fire blight out of them um, in yeah. years past. Uh, uh, and then uh, the one thing I liked about that one I was talking about that was really high acidity and tannins. There's, I've not seen any fire blight on it every year that I've watched it. So, so oh, that's nice. been really cool. And not all the pears up there are like we used one this last year. Um, we harvested a bunch of pears from it and it turned out it didn't ferment. We blended it with, uh, with pineapple quince and wicks and apples and it made actually a really tasty thing, but on its own, it was not a very good, um, perry. So, Wow, got it. But you never know. And yeah, so all across Julian, we'll find like in, in odd places on where just pears have rolled down from old trees and just grown a brand new tree. You know, usually a lot of times they'll have like multiple trunks. Sometimes there'll be a single trunk. It's but but you can usually tell they'll have like some crazy shapes that that they're they're generally not going to be a um, a grafted variety. Hmm. Nice. Well, I, so. Some of these ones that you get excited about, are you also propagating them? Like, do you have a place yeah. where you can grow new things? And yeah, what I, what I do is uh, I'll I'll take varieties and I graft them here, and I'll grow them for the first year at our place here in Valley Center, and then I'll I'll watch them over winter, and I'll see. I'm always also looking for things that are, are more acclimated to a lower chill. So I'll see what goes dormant and, and so on. If something goes dormant early, I'll keep like one or two um, of that variety here to see how they do as they go forward. Um, and then the rest will take to the Guatai orchard. And I have, we basically took a bunch of um, picking bins and filled them with uh, soil and compost and wood and, and uh, so on. And, and we have a nursery going up there. So that gives them a second year of growth before we put them out to the ground. Um, as I learned my first year, we put one-year-olds out and, and the world's still a little hard for one-year-olds. So. <laughs> <laughs> All one-year-olds, yeah. um, <laughs> not just pears. <laughs> it's a harsh world. Um, well, can you talk about, uh, mead and what that's like like how did what why why mead and how hard is that to sell and how do you make it so it's kind of funny like i really i, I people ask me why is your mead like so different than everyone else's and I'm, i tell them i i don't particularly like mead so i figured out a, a way i could make mead that i could kind of enjoy so and, and when we first opened i was making I made like a couple of meads and they were dry and people just kept asking me, why don't you do sweeter things? And so I just kind of let the mead side be our, 
our sweet side of the business. So it, it's, okay. it, it, it keeps, when I bring get a group that comes in, it keeps some people who like sweet things happy, if, if that makes any sense. But oh, yeah. that being yeah. said, we use all like raw honey. Um, we use all locally, like all our, um, everything that goes into our meads is either bought from farms. So a lot of times we buy their ugly um, or overproduced fruit that they can't get rid of. Um, right. And then, because uh, who cares? Once it gets smashed up and turned into juice, yeah, <laughs> no, yeah. No or or we forge things. Like I had, I did a. I actually have a double project going with this. I I did an elderflower mead this year, and then I'm doing a elder a sparkling elderflower um, honey wine, which was all forged elderflowers, and we fermented it on the wild yeast that's on the elderflowers. So, mm. uh, with so the honey, the, uh, the honey, yeah. So we basically drop the elderflowers and a little bit of uh, Meyer lemon for acidity, acidity into there. And oh, then nice. we, um, we just let it go and it took a week, but the yeast kicked off and, and fermented and it actually tastes fantastic. So mm-hmm. um, we're just going to add a little bit more honey and then bottle it and let it um, ferment naturally in the bottle as well. So I was going to say, so you, you end up with a sparkling beverage with the that's meats what, as well. Yeah. In the long run, that's going to be our plan. Yeah. So, yeah. and that's, yeah. That's the direction I want to start going more with with some of our meads is is doing more projects like that with with various fruits is is taking the fruit, um, pressing them down and then uh, adding the honey into them and kind of like a sizer or whatever. Like anything yeah. we do with like sizers and and uh, um, piments, which is a, a grape and honey co ferment, um, will those are all natively fermented as well. So we basically press the fruit down and add the honey in and just let it go. Nice. And can you get a little technical about how you retain the sweetness in the sweet ones? So there's two ways. The stuff that we do on tap, I we in that case we stabilize the the meads because I just, I want to keep the I want to keep the ABVs low so it matches the ABV not low per se, but low to in the range of our ciders, which is between eight and 11%. Uh-huh. Um, and, and I'm, I'm not going to get a yeast to exhaust itself between eight and 11%. So we'll stabilize right. those. Um, first we'll do chilling and we'll do multiple transfers. And then we have to, we will go to a sorbet to, to, to fully stabilize those mead, but, but um, got it. Yeah. we try and avoid it. Um, yeah, yeah, but, but no, yeah, that's, that, that was just, yeah. I know but with our I mean, sizers and our with our sizers yeah. and our payments, we just we we make our starting gravity so high that the yeast will just die off before it ever ferments all the way. Right, right, got it. Yeah, so you have like a higher alcohol with a ton of residual sugar, kind of. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So I mean, they're they're basically they're dessert wines. Um, yeah, right. And right, right. like our sizer, we have one we call special sizer that uh, we we do that, and then we just we. Every year we get a fresh emptied bourbon barrel and we dump it into that and we age it in that for another six to nine months from a local distillery. So Nice. So you mentioned the tap room. Um, where is that? Where can people come in? We're in uh, San Marcos. Currently we're open Friday through Sunday because our tap room is very small and it's also our cidery. And we don't want people in there while we're driving forklifts you know, carefully <laughs> through the place trying to raise and lower barrels. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, I don't know. I don't even understand why you would not want that. Um, <laughs> uh, well, you and I mean, I should say, like, a lot of the bottles that I got from you were 500 milliliter, right? Um, so you're doing these sort of smaller things, which also for the consumer means like 
I mean, I don't know. It's like, I, I love it. I don't know how other people will feel about it, but I think it's like, I can try, you know, 10 different things for you that, for the price that I might try four things from somebody else. And, uh, I, I thought your prices are incredibly reasonable. And at the cider, at the tap room, it looks like I just looked at your chalkboard that you have online. It looks like the same, like you can do a little four ounce taste for like three to three bucks to four bucks for those. Or you can spend like nine bucks or around 10 bucks for a full big glass. Um, I mean, yes, eight to just, nine bucks, I think, for 12 ounce pours. Oh, there you go. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're in the process of re reevaluating that because we've had a lot of costs go up and I've been trying to hold things, but our latest harvest is coming in to being released and, and we, we experienced some ex- increased costs from some of our, especially last year where we didn't have a lot of apples, we bought more. Oh, yeah. and, and then a lot of our partners had to raise their prices for various reasons. And so it's, yeah, it's been, yeah. you know, we're, we're at that point, we're having to look at it and, and reevaluate that a little bit, but it's, it's tough because when we look at, uh, places across the country, uh, and in some areas, people are just like, oh, my God, you guys are too expensive. I can't buy your cider. And, and so it's. Oh, really? Yeah. Wild. <laughs> so I'm like, it's Southern California, people. What do you expect? How many? <laughs> like, and it's um, something different. You're not going to find what I don't think you're going to get the flavor profiles and, and the intensity of flavor that we get sometimes out of because of our apples. Um, yeah. Having such high starting bricks. It's it's kind of a different animal. Well, but- I'd also love to just sort of get your thoughts on cider as this Southern California beverage. Cause I think like when I think about like this heat, so we're in the middle of this sort of heat wave. That's not, you know, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, I mean, the whole country's in the middle of a heat wave, but here in particular, we've had the hottest weather of the year for the past week. And I mean, the thing that got me the most excited this week was popping open two bottles of cider that I brought back from New York and finishing them because like I actually could they're low enough alcohol they're light they're refreshing they're like I don't know I don't feel heavy afterwards I don't feel all heated up and everything from you know a big bottle of something and these are 750s um I are you what what are your thoughts about that I mean I at at the same time I say that at the same time to me it's like this no-brainer like it's a perfect thing for our hot weather it's light it's sparkling it's refreshing um I don't find people embracing cider here the way that they embrace wine, for example. So I, and I work at this wine bar and it's, you know, our, you know, the, the, the bar owners just have this experience of cider being, you know, languishing, like just nobody ordering it. And do you think that is an education thing? Like that the consumer is just not aware that cider can be what the cider is that you're making and that I'm thinking of cider being and that they're thinking of this sort of insipid, you know, beer adjacent thing that they're used to getting, you know, at a tap room that's not very good. It just is basically sweet and fizzy kind of thing. Or is it, you know, or is it something else? I think, I think that's a lot of it. Um, and I agree with you. I think cider is a, I mean, at least the type of cider we make or like our friends at Calico Cider up in Julian or Storm Ranch um, is a, is a, cider that's geared more towards a, a sunny day though our abvs are a bit higher than say stuff you get from other parts of the country we tend to start around eight percent but it's still versus drinking wine it's a much lower abv um alcohol and i don't know what it is i found i can more easily drink 
cider or beer. I mean, cider then I can drink wine or beer. So um, it's been, it's yeah. been, uh, you know, it, it, I think it's a much better beverage for a hot day. Yeah. Yeah. For and sure. uh, it, so, uh, the curse of being in San Diego is that San Diego still thinks that um, beer is king and that IPA is king. So it's, it's uh, it's a hard sell here. And I, I've actually found, I think a lot of the local bottle shops, there's some that have been really supportive, but the majority of them look outside of San Diego. I, I just did a, the Nat Diego, which is a natural wine festival here. And prior to that, yeah. like a, an event with all natural wine and cider makers there from, from here locally. And, uh, and that was kind of the, the resounding thing from everybody is that a lot of the local bottle shops don't really support um, the local producers, which I oh, find yeah. incomprehensible because when you look at areas where cider, or the wine industries are doing fantastic, they're getting supported by local bottle shops. And, and yeah. that's something that's missing here in San Diego. We, we actually have more interest from places in LA, which is I, we're going to start trying to sell up in LA and Orange County much more than we do here in San Diego. So, yeah, I, I mean, I also think like, yeah, I mean, Devin, I want to reiterate that just if you're a buyer, if you're on that, so if you're the distribution and sales side, like you got to rethink the whole cider thing. Like, I mean, it's, it's an amazing untapped opportunity. I think that people, I'm mean, like, once you get a good, what I would consider natural dry cider, you know, into somebody's hands, like it will change their whole perspective on cider. And we have to stop marketing it as in the beer category. It needs to be in the sparkling wine category. And I think, I mean, especially even, even though your costs are high, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that if you have like that somebody, instead of doing a buy the glass, you could do a buy the bottle cider, like even a 750 or, you know, 500 maybe perfect where it's like somebody can just open and crush like an entire bottle for the price that they might pay for like, you know, a glass of sparkling wine. Exactly. You know, and, and such a no-brainer to me it's like put it in there it's like oh yeah try the cider it's like you, you don't get a glass you get a bottle and then like uh and it's the same price you know they can see it's like within a buck or two of the price of a you know a nice sparkling wine on the list by the glass and if it's a well-done cider and there's so many nice examples now on the west coast i mean i'm speaking specifically west coast like forget about the east coast there's like so many good examples but um yeah i, I mean like the whole marketing of it has been like here's the beer and cider list and it's like it's not a beer it's a wine people like let's get it out of the beer list it, it like as long as it's associated with that i think people's minds won't be able to sort of wrap around like what it is what its potential is you know from the consumer well, side like that it's actually it, this other it, thing if you want to go on a complete divergence you will uh, i mean it it makes me so angry that people even within the cider world who try to equate um use beer terms for uh, cider yeah. session yeah. ciders and, yeah. and imperial cider really pisses me off. It's like any cider <laughs> over 8%. I'm like, well then everything I produce is an imperial cider almost. So um, <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, it's cider. I mean, as far as the way we look at it, it should be an expression of the terroir. Our terroir tends to yeah. lend to higher um, ciders. Also, people hopping ciders and calling them India Pale Cider, which is something that's never existed. I mean, they didn't <laughs> hop cider to get from England to India, so I don't understand why you would call it an India Pale Cider. <laughs> so, so, I mean, that whole 
that whole thing of equating like beer terms into the cider world just pushes more of that perception that cider is a beer drink. In fact, I get people who walk in and go, um, can I get a cider beer? I mean, that don't know. It's, it's just, it's frustrating. Um, <laughs> And on top of that, now we as the cider industry in California are fighting this uh, legislation that we were uninformed of until it hit the governor's desk that's going to allow breweries to um, not just the 01, the large breweries, but all breweries um, to produce cider as well as beer because in in the letter from the southern or from the california brewers association they said cider is made in the same uh, manner as beer and so brewers should be able to make cider uh, and I, I, yeah and so my i mean I, my my whole point was is like wait a second if this no one's standing up we, we unfortunately don't really have a cider association this is finally spurring that to occur i think yeah. um for california but um we're, you know, there's been, we've been trying to drum up opposition. I've had uh, local, some of the local natural winemakers have um, said that they've, you know, called in or emailed in to, to oppose the bill. I, I think it's going to pass um, because it went through the legislature without any no votes. So I don't think that yeah. um, the governor is going to not sign it, but it's, it's a travesty. It's an absolute travesty. And, and why do you say that? I'm, I'm just curious what your I mean, what, what, what do you see the impact of that being? Two things. First off, breweries that currently now buy cider from cideries for their tap lists where they have restaurants and so on are going to be, why, why do that when you can make your own cider? So the cideries that are supporting them are now going to be losing out on sales at, at that point. And then also, um, I think it's going to flood the market with more cheap, crappy cider because I, I don't trust that brewers are going to take the time to make a real cider. They're going to be making, right. I, I'll take Coronado Brewing, a case in point, they're in 01, so they've been able to make cider for a bit, but they've been making it from concentrate. And it's just, yeah. it's a bland, boring cider to me. And, and yeah. it's, and that, to push that perception of cider into the market is just going to hurt the people like us that are trying to change that perception that cider is more like a wine then it's yeah. like a beer by far. So, yeah. Huh. So if you, you want, you can email governor Newsom too. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Anyone listening? There you go. Um, for, for what good it will do. Bill is SB 788. If you want to register opposition. So SB 788. All right. Yeah. Awesome. Um, well, cool. Thank you. That's, that's kind of interesting stuff. I, yeah, I give me a second. I'm gathering my thoughts. You got me off onto politics here in my brain. <laughs> so, sorry. It's actually, it's fresh because it only popped up here in the last week. So, <laughs> um, Well, I love that you, your cidery is this family business and that you have these now the generations. I guess when you were a young punk rock person, uh, did you did you see yourself as a grandfather with a intergenerational cidery at some point no, in your life? Not at all. <laughs> I wasn't even sure if I was going to make it past thirty at one point. So, <laughs> yeah, that's awesome, and I love the that <laughs> I love that the, your cidery sort of embodies all these phases for you. It seems like you know from childhood discovery of cider and and punk rock and everything else, um, and and to where you are now, this you know, maturing person with a great uh, with a, a beautiful family, it looks like, and and 
sharing the, all of these loves with them and it seems like they've embraced it too it seems like everybody's involved at some level is that are these full-time yeah. jobs for everybody or does everybody you know, like yourself included have something on the side that they're also we all, doing? We all, we all have day jobs <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah yeah. Uh, yeah yeah my myself and my son actually work there, there's a family business that's, that uh, my father started so we both work there we're we're sheet metal workers during the day by day and then we're uh-huh. we're cider makers and and orchardists by night and weekend so <laughs> and then my daughter actually works at the uh my, so my son and my daughter are both partners with me in the business as well um and my daughter works for the county as a ag inspector and she specializes in insects which comes in really handy for us with pest control <laughs> Ooh, very cool yeah so, everybody needs she, one of those in the family <laughs> an entomologist <laughs> Yeah, she's like, oh, she was in my orchard yesterday. Oh, look, you got tons of lacy wing eggs and everything. I'm like, awesome, because this is, you know, like these are these are beneficial pests and are beneficial insects in the, in the orchard that are popping up. So, awesome, great. Well, so what's uh, what haven't we covered? What 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 should I ask you about? <laughs> what's uh, we could talk about how we actually farm our fruit and that sort of thing i would love to hear that yeah like please i mean you said better than organic and i was going to ask well first okay one little side thing because this was getting back to that but when you talk when you thin fruit have you ever considered using that fruit for like something i mean i know it's like super green and super malic but is there have you ever considered throwing that into something i've actually thought about pickling it <laughs> okay yeah yeah i've definitely thought yeah like that's nice little like on some oysters a little pickled apple you know a pickled green apple kind of thing yeah so i thought about that I, I i i talked to some friends um i i remember them saying they tried to do up at uh, tilted shed um uh, they tried yeah. to do uh they tried to make something with the thin fruit and it wasn't very good so. <laughs> yeah i mean i'll be honest the way that i harvest the fujis to make cider um, and it has made really beautiful cider the, the couple of years that I've been doing it is I pick it when it's not, you know, thinning level of tartness, but it's pre ripe. Like it is not, you know, it hasn't reached dessert level of ripeness yet. Um, so it's very, you know, sharp and it makes just like if, you know, so I'm just picking early and making beautiful cider out of Fuji's, um, you know, I, we just happen to have enough on our tree and, and some neighbor trees too. And that I've just been like, well, what, this this seems like a good strategy if you happen to only have access to sort of dessert apples and you're trying to make a really pretty cider and you don't want it to be flabby and insipid, um, pick early or something like that. But then that also got me because I'm out there thinning now as well because we have big, heavy, you know, the branches are starting to bow down and everything with, with laden with apples. And I've been thinning and thinking like taking a bite and being like, could I use this thing like that? I'm like, can't even taste my tongue after I bite into it. But you know, yeah, um, they're pretty much all starch and acid at that point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really tough. Um, but I mean, it's, it, they remind me of pears, you know, like feral pears and to a certain extent, you know, like some of them anyway, like before bledding. Um, so I don't know. This was this is where my mind went. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I mean, we've we've taken fruit that's not quite ripe and we've used that before and it, it's done pretty well. Um, in not obviously not as much flavor but uh you know if, especially if you've got fruit that's not typically very acidic it, it it can work and we actually there's a crab apple we pick the hyssop crab apple we pick them probably a week before they hit full ripeness because 
one week to two weeks because we found they develop a lot of sorbitol um, as they oh. hit full ripeness, which we don't want because it's 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 of the level that so it, it becomes uncomfortable when people drink the drink. Let's put it that way. Uh, you mean like people have digestive issues afterwards? Yeah, they have major digestive <laughs> issues with it. So, Got so it. one year we harvested them late, and and uh, it it. It was an issue. So um, we've harvested them probably about, and not only that, I found like by doing so, um, we we get a little bit more brightness and acidity out of them and the tannins don't become so intense. Like when, they, when uh, they're when they extremely ripe, I mean, it took um, one of the ones that we did, the 2018 one, the tannins just now have started amalgamate, amalgamating or whatever where they they um, the the tannin chains get longer and they've softened, yeah. but it was it was like kick you in the teeth tannins for the first like three years that we had that cider. So <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Um, yeah, the yes, I, okay, cool. I got it with the sorbitol. So I and now the the benefit of sorbitol though is uh, you know with a nice acidic pear. You know, it's also pears are known for having sorbitol. It's unfermentable, and you get. Like this uh, perception of sweetness, even when it's dry, and which can be lovely, you know, it can, you know, be a, a. Oh, absolutely! The one you're talking about, the Perry Farrell, has it's. I think it's like a around about one point three or one point four bricks, if I remember correctly. I can't off the top of my head, and so it has a nice like sweetness that balances against the tannins and the acidity in that in that uh, Perry. Um, yeah, but I I really enjoy it. Um, Oh, but yeah, as soon as you get up over two bricks, residual sweetness, which is not from sugar, but from the sorbitol, it's where you start to run into issues. Got it. Okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, right. This is why doctors prescribe pears for, <laughs> exactly. for uh, regularity. <laughs> um. <laughs> we, in fact, early on, we did a, a dessert, all dessert pear, perian, and our bathroom was a mess. <laughs> 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 at the tasting room so <laughs> that's fantastic <laughs> um well yeah so you said better than organic farming what does that mean for you i mean in my mind that we we do biodynamic farming we do no-till um and a lot of those principles i learned there's a there's a farm nearest uh, anarchist biodynamic farm um that we get um, fruit from as well but uh um i been i just started talking more and more with them and incorporating more and more of their farming ideals and and the whole idea of no-till actually a long time ago i read a, a article about a guy up in the central valley that was taking uh animal waste and just spreading it and letting it rot in place and and he was developing like not inches but feet of topsoil that was you know he reduced like water usage over time by um two-thirds um to farm wow. his land of course you have to lay, lay fallow for for yeah let, you it, know. To let it break down yeah for exactly like 100 so days but, yeah whatever, yeah yeah when i started my the year before we started our planting more apple trees here at our home orchard. I just started taking, we have, we have, you know, horses and donkeys and goats. And so I just started taking all that and spreading it over there on the soil and letting it just rot in place and layering like leftover hay and straw and whatever else I could get and just let it all just start rotting in place 
on that side of the property for the first year. And then after we planted trees in the rows, down the center of the rows between the trees, away from the trees themselves, I continued that for another couple of years. Um, and, and we've gone from where that soil was heavily just DG, the um, decomposed granite, to yeah. you can dig in now and you've got like this really rich orga- organic um, soil over there that's, you know, it holds so much more moisture. And then every year we plant like cover crops um, and then mow them in um, and just let that all just lay in place as well. So it's just continually adding to the soil over there. Yeah, lovely. And, and, and now I mean, we, we take our animal waste and we comp- we um, we compost it. And and now I just added night crawlers to my compost piles, which I didn't wasn't sure how I was going to do. And I just dug in there yesterday and there's these masses of, of night crawlers going through and the soil has just turned this beautiful black um, soil in the compost pile. So... Oh, interesting. So are night crawlers as good as like the red wigglers? Is there well, a they're a secondary composter. So the red wigglers are a primary composter, um, yeah. more or less. So I have, I actually have red wigglers in a thing in my garage right now doing um, primary composting of vegetables and so on. And, uh, and, and then that'll also get turned into um, soil for our, for our orchard. But um, the, the, Nightcrawlers for once we've composted traditionally, throwing those in there, it seems like they're just turning the soil even richer than it was before. So, huh. oh, man, that's so that, and that's good. something. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Cool. That's and then we do. Know. We also spread tons of wood chips. So we always like this winter. I was really excited because I would dig through, and there's just so much um, mycelium growing through the soil. Um, don't even yeah. get me talking about mushrooms because I'm a complete mushroom nerd. So, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, there was mycelium everywhere in the soil. So that was really exciting to see as well. So it, it you know, and just more things turning the soil into into um, compounds that the trees can use. And that is the benefit of wood chips, right? Because you're you're creating, you're giving cellulose that is a mushroom food and creating this pro-fungal environment in the soil, which is great for perennials. That's that's the idea, right? Is that a Michael Phillips technique that you learned, or was that uh, just something that? You no, that was more. That was more um, came from reading Stamets a long time ago, though. I don't ah, know okay. everything he does, but. Um, but uh, yeah, just reading about how the you know the the wood getting turned back into soil for the trees in the forest, and and so I kind of incorporated yeah. that idea into our orchard. Yeah, I think that's great. Well, I mean, it's a little you know off thing, but I was going to ask you about any of the mushrooms that you might have found in the as you're you know traipsing about the mountains there looking for feral trees or wild seedlings um have you encountered stuff i know like morels are usually associated with apples um do you find have you found any morels or anything like that no 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 morels so i hear on palomar that there are morels i haven't i haven't actually found any myself other than the you can find the landscape morels which grow they're actually yeah. not a mycorrhizal uh mushroom they they're a composter um you can find those sometimes in landscape like wood chips but uh yeah um, we find uh there's oysters lion's mane um there's some edible varieties of agaricus uh, and then there's uh, which is you know similar to the button mushroom um we also we found what the really cool one we found in the orchard that we manage up in julian is called a liver belief um, Sweet Lellis. My daughter knows the Latin better than I do, but it's a 
it's a delicious edible that they tasted kind of like slices of steak. We just cut them up and sauteed oh. them, and, and they were super oh. delicious. So, so we're, we're, we're on, we've got the we're eyeballing for those for, forever now since we found yeah. them. The one <laughs> they, they came up right after that hurricane remnant thing went through San Diego County. So, so um, but uh, yeah, though, and then and there's some other like we get. Uh, um, blanking on the name right now but there's another belief that grows all over the place here associated with the oaks it's super delicious and then there's reishi and and turkey tail and and uh there are medicinals and turkey tail you can actually cook and make a broth from and they're super delicious in, in, mm. in a broth um so yeah it's, there's there's quite a number of mushrooms. Of course, we're Southern California, so it's more arid, so we don't get the the diversity of mushrooms that they get in Northern California. Oh, you can find chanterelles here and some other um, bolites as well. So, wow, that's that's still pretty impressive. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I just don't. Yeah, I even I I, I just I've, I've been looking north. I got to start looking south. I think you got it's even closer <laughs> to where yeah. I am to get to mountains and all this kind of stuff. So it's fun. Oh yeah, there's good stuff up all around LA too, up in the mountains. Once you get out into areas where there's kind of undisturbed old like growth forests and so on, um, you can find all kinds of really awesome things, you know, especially in the oak, the live oak forest, there's a lot of good stuff. Oh yeah. Yeah, true. And uh, the crossovers between Live Oak and, and uh, Manzanita, too. There's some really cool stuff. So, Oh, yeah, that's true. I love Manzanita. I think it's such yeah. a beautiful plant. I mean, the yeah, I mean, yeah, stunning. That's it's actually the, that's the habitat for the um, liver beliefs I was talking about. Is that Manzanita, oh, you're kidding me. Oh, Manzanita man. Oak. So. <laughs> it's like a fairy tree to me. That's, uh, that's yeah. awesome. That's so cool. <laughs> I mean, it's not even like a tree for years. It's just like so slow growing is it it's the one with the red wood right like the red yeah it's trunk. got the red yeah. wood on that there's two there's man madrone which is more than northern california and manzanita which is kind of like a bushy tree here in southern right. california so yeah gorgeous yeah i've seen some big ones like in sequoia where they've grown yeah i mean they're probably really old but you know those might be uh madrone because they look similar okay. as the wood looks okay. so and they're more tree like the, the madrone yeah yeah got it okay got it Fun. Yeah, so we've even in our orchard here. I've inoculated the wood chips with uh, with um, wine cap mushrooms, which are really tasty edible, and they break the yeah. they break the wood chips down into like super beautiful black soil. So, oh wow! And you and you had no problem with that. Do you have to like? I mean, is it? It's, you, so it depends on the year. Uh, if, during the yeah. summer, um, if it's a really hot, dry year, they. They sometimes will survive, sometimes they don't, and then I have to re-inoculate. Um, but most years, some will survive, and then they'll start popping up again the next year. So nice. So they help compost uh, when it's you know when the conditions are right, and then you get to eat them as well. Exactly. I do a lot of stuff like that. Our, our winter cover crops. I'm always planting like fava beans, and and uh, and then I also put in. Um, different cabbage type plants they'll drive like really big deep roots in so they they open the soil up and and uh, we actually will plant wheat and and then i'll i've been this coming winter i'm gonna plant more wheat for a friend of mine that has a bread uh, sourdough project where he's trying to regrow um the wheat growing areas down here so that um, he can locally source wheat for his uh, sourdough so 
Oh, so he's been doing um, testing with different varieties. And so in the, in between my trees, I'm going to plant a bunch of wheat and, you know, they'll just live off of the winter rain. So. Sounds very Italian. I got to tell you, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> that whole area, I mean, every, and, and that style sounds like the old, uh, you know, I mean, there's still farms like that, but these are like the old pre, you know, pre-modern era, the Etruscan farming style for like 3000 years was those, that alley cropping system with, you know, fruit trees and vines, uh, and, and, you know, spaced and wide things. So you could farm between them and run animal, you know, graze animals between them as well. Um, you now the, I'm just going back to the cabbage. What are the cabbage crops? Like I, I don't, I've, I scattered mostly, like, mostly like uh, kales and, and, um, yeah. And what's the, oh, it's the collard greens? Yeah, collard yeah. greens and so on. So I found, and, I mean, I, I found this really cool thing that happened with the collards where I just scattered a ton of seed, you know, traditional cover crop seeds, clovers and vetches and rye and peas and, and then a bunch of flower seeds and then also a bunch of vegetable seeds. And it has been really cool to just to see the succession of like what pops up when and what resows and stuff like that. And what I found was like all the traditional cover crop, which is you know, why their traditional cover crops, you know, sort of took over and dominated right at the beginning. We had, you know, the peas and clovers and rise really like close out everything. But as they started dying back, I found the collards popping up and the collards just have loved it. Like they've just thrived and, even, you know, like I'm not watering, like or very little watering. So it's like, you know, we just have heavy clay that the, these collards are getting huge on just the inner, you know, what's left over after everything else dies back. It's really cool to see. Yeah. Um, and, and we found the same thing. And even without in the areas where I don't water in between the trees, the collards will still just keep surviving. I mean, it's yeah, yeah. near 100 degrees out there and they're still cranking away. There's not a ton of them, but they're there, you know. And Right. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, I normally in years past, I've just switched up my watering system and I'm, I'm experimenting, experimenting with something new. Cause as you know, Southern California water is king. And uh, yeah. so I'm trying to, I, I try, I tried like a drip tape method running three rows of drip tape along each row of trees and, and it worked out right. But I don't think I was getting the, the advantages I wanted to, but I was able to farm more between the trees because of the drip tape. Right. Um, so like so last year we grew tons and tons of cowpeas and tomatoes and, oh, wow. and squashes and, and things. And, and I was looking to try and create like a thing where I got a living green uh, uh, compost ba- or coverage basically to help. You ever, you ever notice like when you have squash plants or whatever where they've got dense foliage and you touch the ground underneath it tends to stay moister than, yeah. than the ground around it. So I, was, I messed around with that con- concept, but I'm, I'm back to mostly watering the trees and, and a few other, I have some asparagus planted out there because I like asparagus. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So. No, that's a, yeah. I, do you have enough water for asparagus? It seems like it, I mean, I guess you have to irrigate, right? When I want to irrigate for the trees, I, it seems that cause the roots are deep. So I, I, I do, when I do irrigate, it's a long watering and then we, I try and let it go for a long time. Cause I, and again, like I said, I've, I've built up mounds of wood chips around the trees and so on. So it helps to keep moisture in the soil. So the asparagus seems to like it. Nice. And have you messed around with anything like tepary beans or some of those? Yeah, like, I did really tepary beans, especially, especially last year. So there's a, actually there's a guy here in Valley Center that is uh, a, a Rancho del Rey, I think, um, beans. And he's 
he has tons of temporary beans and, and different bean um, crops that, uh, so I, I've gotten some from there and, and planted them when we're going to get the um, fall rains from the monsoon and let them just water. Cause they're, that's basically what they're designed for is to get watered by monsoon rains. It's, that's, that's their natural habitat. So, so oh, I'll, wild. I'll just stick them out there when we know we're going to get monsoon rains. It, it varies from year to year here. So that's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, now, and where you're planting them is uh, there in, not in the not orchard. The, yeah, just in the in the areas between the trees, where it's just kind of arid and dry. So how? So just so I have a sense, and everybody else does. How? What is the spacing, and how old are the trees? The trees are my trees are they're not super old right now. They're they vary from I just planted some out there and replaced. When I first planted, I didn't put anything in to protect for gophers, so the gophers have taken out quite a few trees so i've been replanting year to year with with uh new trees um or trees that just didn't make it because they're not really adapted to the hot dry conditions so um i've got trees that are out there that are like six seven years old and i've got trees out there that are one year old so it it. it just really it varies so when and what's the spacing um i've ran them at 14 by 12 because i don't have a lot of room here we're, we're only on three acres so got it yeah and so when they mature will they, they'll fill in and do you think you'll be able to do as much cropping or are you going to prune them uh, you know what's your plan as they mature as they mature i'm going to kind of gauge the area and see what it looks like yeah. uh, and see what i can and can't do i it's going to probably end up i don't know if you ever seen like uh, I was talking with Scott from Tilted Shed. Um, they were they gave me a lot of input early on when I was starting. Um, Got and, it. Yeah. And they've planted a lot of their. They they have a little bit wider spacing between the rows, um, but uh, less spacing between the trees. Um, okay. And, and, yeah. and if you look at their at their home orchard, it's the same type of thing. It, it, the trees are not huge, and I'm I'm on. I started on M111 rootstock, uh, and. Uh, have been switching over to B118 for a lot of the trees I graph now. And then, and then recently I've been just going to Antonovka and P, P8, P18, uh, which okay. are full standards. Cause I, just more and more looking at the old orchards here, the, the, the ones that, that survive and do well with zero water are all seedling, you know, or full, full standard trees you know, with minimal right. or, or zero water. So, so that's kind of the direction we're going at this point is, is, is moving that way. And you can always control the size of the trees with pruning with uh, summer pruning. So. Right. Right. Good point. I love that. Um, <laughs> now what else are you doing? Well, you, you made me think of something by, Oh, predators. Um, is it fenced off to like to prevent, <laughs> You know, where I'm at, we're, we don't have deer. So okay. we, we had deer, but I haven't seen deer in years. I did have an issue. I did have some, I did an experiment, and we have a riverbed along the bottom of our property. And it's like this year, it's ran until just probably about a week ago um, wow. from all the rains we got. But uh, we get, I mean, we have, a, it's a corridor. So we get mountain lions and bobcats and coyotes and all that move through that riverbed. Um, and but they're not not consistent enough to keep the gopher problem from being a problem. No, 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 no. The gophers are more like the, the, the birds. And then my, hopefully my cats, though my cats are fat and lazy. 
<laughs> right, right, exactly. Yeah, but, uh, but you, uh, you, need, you need some king snakes, maybe. I know. Um, oh no, believe me. Anytime I find a king snake, I bring them home and release them on a property. I just saw one <laughs> a little while ago, and uh, and gopher snakes. We have those around and rattlers too. So they all they all hunt gophers. Um, and then I've I've been hunting them, but uh, mostly in the orchard area. There, yeah. I mean gophers. I've been planting, I've been putting my trees in gopher cages now, so that keeps them off. And gophers have a, a job to do. And, and one of the things they sure. do is they, they create an intermix of deeper soils back up to the surface and help to aerate the soil. So they're not a terrible thing to have. It's just when you're trying to grow a crop, they, they like to eat them. They like to eat the right. same type of things that we do, basically. Yeah. They also, so, uh, I, I guess, with with rain, provide water infiltration into the deeper soil, right? And, and exactly, you know, yeah, and so. oxidation and all that stuff. So, I mean, it's the same thing you're trying to do with cover crops. With you know, when you mow in a cover crop, and they've, when you've got the stuff that's got the deep roots, like daikon radish, or even the cabbages and so on, as those roots shrink then they're aerating the soil and allowing more for moisture to get into the dirt and and uh and and basically creating a better a better yeah piece of land so yeah <laughs> well as much as i'm complaining about the raccoons in my backyard i'm also finding them digging up the grubs that become the beetles that eat the grapes in about a yeah. month and so i'm like well I mean, there is a trade-off. They're not, you know, the beetles won't eat them. The, the raccoons might eat them, <laughs> but uh, at least they're saving me from the beetles. Um, oh, yes. Yeah, they're harder, harder to we, scare off. <laughs> we get that, like the fig eater beetles. We get those. Yeah, and, them, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, my, we have chickens and the chickens, when they find the, the grubs for those, they're, oh. it's... It's a feeding feed frenzy. They, they love them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Their their uh, prehistoric instincts come out. <laughs> Carnivorous <Exactly>. pterodactyls. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, that that was the nice thing about having chickens too, and I, why I let them in the vineyard longer than I probably should have. Um, yeah, yeah. They do but um, yeah, and we so we do all that here, and that's all here at our place. We we also have a. The orchard at Guatai, we're not there that much. I mean, it's it's within San Diego County, but it's a, about an hour drive from here, so we're there less. Um, but one of the things we've been doing there, I mean, we we work with the the people who own the property. They actually do a lot of the mowing, but um, we're going to be moving more to planting uh, cover crops during the winter. Though they have a pretty decent native cover crop that already grows there uh we're just going to add some stuff to it and then um there's a mushroom farm on that property as well and so we've been able to get uh a lot of the leftover like mushroom what do you call it spent mushroom uh, yeah the the substrate substrate and we spread that around and let that all rot in place. And again, that's a great, you know, it's a lots of cellulose from the straw and the wood, chi- wood chips and so right. on that we use. Um, so that's all great for the soils there in the orchard as well. Yeah. So those are things we're doing there. Um, and, and that one there, that valley is, is kind of crazy. It's, it's a rarity here in Southern California, but the valley is like full of water. Um, so that, orchard is actually able to be irrigated all from well water and and good well water the problem is you get sometimes a lot of places here the well water the water is relatively shallow and it's fairly salinic and so the apple trees oh, yeah. don't like it. orange trees like it but apple trees don't like it that's right <laughs> yeah there are some great orange groves down that way as well um, yeah and avocado um, 
What? Yeah, so, condos disappearing a little bit because of the water issue, but ah, uh, got it. Yeah. Well, what else? Uh, I mean, so you mentioned chickens and gophers. Do you have any other critters that are living in there? It sounds like you could be yeah, we have goats, grazing. Um, but oh, we, okay. we the goats and the and the donkeys we keep away from the orchard because they also like to eat the trees and strip the bark. So, um, sure, but we, sure. we use their waste. <laughs> right. Great. Yeah. Yeah. They're they're intense. <laughs> Both of them. Exactly. Um, we took the orchard over and Julian and the um, the guy who was kind of watching the orchard before us was a rancher and was running his cattle in there. But uh, that was one of the reasons that the the, um, the tribes were looking for someone else to take it over is because the, the cattle were just destroying the trees. They were stripping the bark up the trees and and uh, so on. So uh, when we took it over, there was and the, and the orchard had been abandoned basically for 30 years so. It's oh, been wow. a major, major rehab job, but I feel like it's on the up. You know, every year it's looking a little bit better. I mean, we've had a couple of inclement years with weather, but uh, but um, I think, you know, this year looks pretty decent. I think next year is going to be a really good year in that orchard. Oh, fantastic. So what it was the tribe? So this is on, like, reservation land? No, it's – so there's this uh, – the Kumeyaay Land Conservancy Council, which is uh, yeah, you mentioned that. Asked, all the yeah. tribes within the council, within the county, they they have, uh, or most of the tribes, um, they have this group where um, people, if they're going to pass away and they don't really have heirs that they want to leave land to, or they want to make sure their land is never developed, they can leave land to the to the to this Kumeyaay Land Conservancy Council and they guarantee mm-hmm. that the land will never be developed. So oh, it's man. kind of a cool idea, and they had this orchard that they were looking for someone to really take care of. So, got it. So and so the the land can be made productive, uh, can be farmed, but not just not developed into like. Well, we're not we're not adding to the orchard, but we're taking care of the orchard. So in that case, right. in that orchard, we mow it, and we in fact I just did that a couple of weeks ago, um, in the heat <laughs> while my right. tractor was overheating. But uh, yeah, got that mowed in before everything cur- turned completely brown. Um, and then, uh, we will chip like deadwood. I mean, what we'll do is any deadwood or, or, or prune wood, we'll save it up. And then when we have a bunch, we'll take a wood chipper in there and then we'll chip mounds of, uh, of, uh, wood chips around the trees to, to basically rot in place and, and conserve moisture in the soil. And then we harvest and, and that's pretty much about all we do in that orchard. But so it's, it's sort of like a fun- zero in. Oh, absolutely zero. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, everything we do, I mean, we have even the Guatai orchard in here. I mean, other than doing, um, uh, you know, some like sprays of, of compost teas and so on, we're, we're pretty much zero input into to everything. So, yeah, that's great. And, and there's and there's actually that was a cool thing in Julian. There's a lot of kind of old orchards where I mean, there's part of our project was to help to rebuild orchards. So there's some orchards where we've been working with people and like, there's one where they actually came back to us and they're like, what trees do you want us to plant? And so they've actually not only taken care of their old trees, but are now have like planted like cider varieties for us specifically to be able to, to use in, in our cider making. So, so that was kind of a neat thing because, because looking at the Julian area, the, the orchards were just in decline and there's been, and the nice thing about it is between us and then now Calico opening and then Storm Ranch, there's like this a little bit of an excitement about that area where people are starting to take care of their orchards a bit more and, and, and not let them, 
be plowed under or whatever. So it, really it's cool. it's kind of neat. Yeah, because some of these are really old historic orchards, right? Exactly. I mean, there's yeah. a, there's a one tree in one orchard that's an old gravity scene that was planted. It's supposedly the oldest living tree in Julian that was from the 1880s, I, I believe. Wow. Um, so it, it's and it's really cool to look at because the trunk is hollow, but like the outside of the tree is still there around the base of the tree, and then it's just this massive Grabenstein tree. So <laughs> that's so cool. Um, God, you, again, made me think of something that I was going to ask you, and then got distracted by the hundred and some year old tree. Hundred. <laughs> um, <laughs> hold on a second. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm just laughing because I'm not laughing, but I'm imagining, I am laughing. I'm imagining East Coast apple growers are hearing us and just getting madder and madder by the minute, like listening to how easy you sort of have it here. Like all the, you know, the, the I mean, not that it's easy, not that any farming is easy, but, you know, it, relative to the pressures that they have to deal with and, and you know, oh, we don't have deer. We don't really have fire blight occasionally. Well, on a, <laughs> let's take that back. I don't have deer at my home orchard. We have deer right. everywhere else. <laughs> right, <laughs> like, right, 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 yeah. The owners didn't want to put deer fence in around the, the orchard for the first, like, almost four years we were there. And so I was getting a little discouraged because of the depredation we were looking at on the trees. And, and so last year they finally allowed us to to put deer fence up around and so now the trees okay. are finally picking off so i feel much better about it because at, at there's at one point i was like am i just a bad orchardist or is it just that we need to get these trees protected which is what it was but right, but i right. I'm really <laughs> feeling bad about the way the trees look for a while there so but yeah, uh, yeah, but, yeah. We depredation and we and we have to deal with fire blight on and off and uh and uh, we have coddling moth, and we've got a number of other pests that have been hitting lately. Um, talking to a couple of the orchards up in Julian, where there's a new—I forget the name of it right now—but there's a it's a something worm that's been getting up. It's not stuff that bothers us. Like coddling moth doesn't really bother me because, I mean, as far as like damage to the apples, that that doesn't really affect what we do. But for the people who are growing fruit for you picks or for, for selling to market oh, yeah. and so on that, you know, there, there are a number of pests that they're having to deal with. So, right. And no. there's like, there was a weird fungal hit this year too, but that was, I think due to the extreme amount of moisture. So, yeah. Yeah. Which maybe, maybe we'll see more of in the future, but it's probably not going to be the regular. Um, no, it'll be dry, dead dry, then super wet. We're never going to get anything close, I think, to normal. Right, right. Yeah, I think that's, that is the new, yeah, I hate saying that. That is the new normal. <laughs> yeah. Um, so is there anything else that you're doing that's unusual uh, relative to what is normally done in orchards? No, cover? I mean the only the only other thing I kind of I touched on a little bit earlier is that we we've been grafting local seedling varieties of apples and and pears that we found that are useful um, to us for what we do um, and with a kind of a concept of creating this uh, a cider and then a perry that that is truly San Diego County. Um, yeah. Based, like, it's you know these are these are varieties that started here and exist here. I'm, they're not only existing here because I've done trades with people back on the East Coast, like Black Duck Cidery, um, Floral Terrains, uh, uh, with Benford, and then with uh, Rose Hill with Matt and and uh, who else? I'm trading next year with Left. 
I think it's at Left Bank. I forget. I, I got to go back and look at my notes. And um, Greenpoint Cidery um, uh-huh. for varieties that they have. And so I'm, you know, I, I, I'm also really interested in, in finding like wild varieties that they have that may do well here and that and then sending some varieties we have here. So maybe they'll grow up somewhere else in the world and and uh, and see what works and what doesn't. Yeah. But essentially developing like a local regional, uh, you know, cider culture, basically, exactly. that's, that's in, you know, so, you know, uh, locally adapted and and for, you know, for that place. Well, uh, and that's that. it. And I, I've gotten some pushback from people going, oh, they're doing well there because they're seedlings and they're on their own roots. And I'm like, yeah, but they also even though that is a case and they're going to be more drought tolerant because of that, they also produce in, a, in our environment where that's right. not always the case. I mean, we, we have lots of failed apple plantings that where we, we have trialed varieties that just don't do well here in Southern California. Um, but then we have other varieties that are completely unexpectedly doing like Nihau, which is a French, originally a French cider apple. It's a bittersweet and it, it, it produces apples like berries. I mean, <laughs> it's just crazy how many apples they produce. So, um, and we've had pretty decent luck with Calaus and we've been planting a lot of Spanish varieties because first off, I love Spanish ciders. Um, but they, we have like the same similar soils, though, a different, Growing, we have you know warmer winters, um, but our summers are drier and hotter than they are in the in the Spanish um, cider growing regions or apple growing right. regions. Right, right, yeah. But we're trialing them and seeing what happens and what does well and what doesn't. So, great, awesome. Well, great. This is. I'm glad we came back on to to discuss all this. This is fantastic. Yeah, and um, the good thing is, is my daughter's house isn't burning down and didn't need to be evacuated. So, whew, that is the good news. <laughs> Yeah. Well, um, and then just for the record, you uh, you want to give your um, Instagram and and website for people to get in touch with you and buy cider. Yeah, our uh, website is uh, is uh, ragingcidermead dot com. Our uh, Instagram is at raging underscore cider, um, and then I think we're just raging cider on Facebook. So, for for awesome. the old people who still use Facebook. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Dave. I really appreciate it. This is great. All right, thank you. And and if you're if you're ever heading to San Diego, uh, touch base with me. I'd love to hang out and show you. Oh, I do. you're going to be my first call for sure, definitely. I, I mean, <laughs> I'm planning a trip. It's just when to schedule it in with my crazy life right now. But it's it's happening. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I wanted to end with this thought. As I think about two responses to what is happening in the world, climate crisis and other crises that converge and really are scary for a lot of us, um, as they should be. One way that we can respond is by thinking about how we can get away from it all onto our own piece of land and form a homestead and be able to survive <laughs> by ourselves. And, you know, when the collapse comes, we'll have everything we need right there on our little farm. That's one way of thinking about it. And, you know, that's that there's some there's some merit to that. I mean, I, I definitely think about that. I mean, this is one way my mind goes. The other thing that I think is a really important idea in regenerative farming, in permaculture, in all of these uh, ways of looking at the world and improving the world in uh, and moving towards a future that is actually that 
where there actually is a future, <laughs> um, is to remember that part of regenerating, part of permaculture is community. This is a huge, important aspect. And at no point has a single organism <laughs> on planet Earth, human or otherwise, survived on its own when the shit came down. We need each other. The more desperate times are, the more we need each other. And I encourage you all to consider what you can do to build a stronger, more vital, more vibrant community right around you and how you can, rather than flee, um, put down deeper roots that will enable you to withstand whatever comes, to be resilient and adaptable because of the support, the, the care, the love that you share with the people right around you, neighbors, friends, family, and your regional extended relationships. Just wanted to leave you with that thought. Thank you for listening.